The following lecture is from a course called Psychology 3717, uh, Memory. It's for the winter term of 2019. By the way, how the hell did it ever get to be 2019? Anyway, hope you like the class and uh, see you next time. So, we have, with the icon and the echo, these are notions of different systems for sensory register for different senses. So the icon is for seeing, the echoes for hearing. The icon was pretty well studied by a guy named Sperling. Uh, the echo is not so much. The icon stuff's very cool. So like I said, this actually isn't working memory, but I have to have a place to talk about this because it's one of my favorite results in, in psychology. Um, so. What Sperling did is he showed people very, very short amounts of time, 20th of a second. Um, arrays of nine or 12 letters in three rows. Sorry, yeah, 50 milliseconds, that's the 20th of a second. That's, oh, it is the 20th of a second, actually. Yeah, yeah. it is. Okay, good. Okay. It's pretty quick. It's snap your fingers quick, like it bang, bang, and it's gone. And then he asks people to report the, 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 what they saw. Tell me what letters you saw. Sure, why not? And they do, and they get to about three or four, and they can't do any further anymore. And it seems like a small number because four items, it struck Sperling as being a little bit small. So what about asking people if you have three rows of, of, of characters? What about asking people to just report part of it? Because maybe this thing decays so quickly that by the time they've read four of their representation, off their, quote, icon, it's faded away. So why don't we ask people top, middle, bottom, and have them report it. <clears throat> so you do partial report by a phone report. When you do that, they actually can report around somewhere between three and four. But by the time they get to the fourth one, it's faded away. So what Sperling says is it's, it's not really just three items. It's probably closer to nine or 12 items. But the thing fades away so damn quickly that people can't report it. So they can report the middle. They actually have seen it in the bottom row. They just, it's faded away when they're trying to report the whole thing. How does Sperling do this? Well, in fact, you would think, you wouldn't want to use anything visual because it would somehow interfere. So in fact, you use a high tone for the top, a medium tone for the middle, and a low tone for the bottom. Da, 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 something like that. Okay. One of the neatest results is he would show people, and I've got a schematic of this here in a second. Let's see this. But he'd show people this, and these are letters typically. So he's got this array of 12 characters. And then shows it for a 20th of a second. And then immediately following that, he puts a, uh, a mask, so just a dot or another letter, right in, the, in, in, in a place of where one of the letters was. And then he asks people to report it, and they actually can't report the one where the mask is. So I'll show you this. Okay, so first of all, this is how it typically works. So people get shown this array of 12 letters, and then they hear a tone, and they give a response. Okay? And if it's a higher tone, they, they say the top one. A medium tone, they, they report the middle ones. A low tone, they report the and they can't do this. Now, with the way that the mask works, here's your 
list, and then put an X, so bang, bang, but that X is right where the J is. And then when people try to report that, they can't, because an X on top of a J doesn't look like a letter. It's just a mess. The kicker is that when you do the same thing, but with just an underscore, they can do it just fine. As long as it's not actually on the thing, masking it, that's what's called mask, people can report it just fine. So does he show the array and then the X, or does he show the array and then the X flashes on top of it? No, the array, then it's gone, and then the next thing shows on top, like okay. not on top of it, but. But subsequently. Subsequently, yes, exactly. So this is showing that this representation is, this is really just raw, unprocessed, sensory information. Sperling said it's basically your retina. I bring this up for a couple of reasons. First of all, um, it's exceedingly clever, right? Like this is really neat. Uh, se secondly, uh, it can be replicated very easily. Like it's, it's not like it's one of these things that no one was ever able to find it again. You know, like the Stanford prison experiment, which turns out to be a big crock of shit. Um, do some reading. It's been found that it's just bullshit, that whole thing. Uh, that everybody knew that they were playing roles. And, they were oh, encouraged. They were encouraged to play roles. Oh, yeah, it's really... Yeah. <laughs> not good. No, it's not good. It's not good. It's... Uh, which is good, it says something good about people, actually, maybe. Um, this is nice and replicable. And the other cool thing about this, to me, is that when I first saw this in human memory in, in 1986, I went, oh boy, this is cool. Maybe I could do this job. So this is actually the first time I thought to myself, wow, you get to discover shit like this? This really, that, that's the important take home message is what it, how it affected me. Um, <laughs> is that the cool thing here is, to me, I, I looked at this and went, you could do something this really kind of hardcore science-y as with people, and you, you don't have to be inside their brains and me messing them up or anything like that. You don't have to worry about people getting, you know, trying to find people that have amnesia so they've had big bumps on the head. You just have this really neat result. And you can do it if you're exceedingly clever. Do really clever experiments. So this really inspired me as well. Just thought I'd bring that up. So that's why I want to talk about it now. We could probably, probably skip it, typically. <laughs> but I want to talk about it at some point, and this is the time to go. Do so you understand the results, these results, Sperling Fed? They're very cool. Like I said, it really did inspire me. I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen at the time. It felt like it. I've seen better things since. Okay, let's get into actual working or short-term memory. It's funny, we used to call short-term memory, now we call it working memory. I'll probably use those terms interchangeably. I might even throw in short-term store now and then. They all mean the same thing. The Brown-Peterson phenomenon works like this. You give people a constant, no constant triggers. So it's back to the old Ebbinghaus approach. This is in the 50s. All this stuff explodes in the 50s when, when, I, when the two-store model becomes popular. Um, cognitive revolution and such. So, giving people constant valve constant trigrams and having them repeat them to you. We're very good at this, except when you use the Brown-Peterson phenomenon, or effect, or, or approach rather, is you have people do a distractor task between items. Not after you've had a list of items, but literally between items. And I think the Peterson and Peterson paper, Brown was a different, was a guy, Peterson and Peterson were a husband and wife team. And if I remember theirs, they had people counting backwards by threes from 999 out loud after they'd present them with one of these constant, not constant, trigrams. So they could give them like back, back, B-A-P. So they go back, B-A-P. Then they go, okay, 999, 996, 193, then they show another. And then they have to keep counting backwards from where they were. So this is hard. So they prevent, what they're doing is they're preventing rehearsal. Because look, 
Everybody knows they're a memory test. That's what this is. And if you were in a memory, what do you do if you have to memorize something? You repeat it to yourself. You rehearse. You might even do it out loud. At the very least, you do it sort of in your mind's ear, if that's a word or an expression. Right? Like whenever I get a phone call and I don't answer it because it's, probably, it's not a number I recognize and anybody who gives me unknown caller, I, I don't answer the phone because it's like, screw you. If it's that important, you can leave me a message. But then I, the immediately thing I do is I look up the phone number, reverse look up and see if it's one of those uh, things where they say that the Revenue Canada owes you money and you have to pay it with iTunes gift cards. You know, part of me thinks people who fall for that Maybe that's okay. Uh, that's not really fair or nice, but we got. Did I tell you these guys this? We got hit by the, uh, this at the university spearfishing. So they, there's somebody who was faking being the president, and she'd send an email. Huh. Yeah, and and it looks like it's the president. It's actually not. I mean, look at the email address, but there was also the IT as well. There was one from IT? Yeah, saying, oh, enter your password into here. Oh, those happen all the time, but these are actual, unlike saying it's from IT, this act says it was from Asma Vezina, and oh. it's signed president of the university. Oh, okay. And it looks like it's from her at first. You just get an email. I don't usually look at email headers. Yeah. And it's like, uh, Dave, do you have a second? And it's, I reply, yeah, sure. I'm at home. Call me. And she says, she replies, no, uh, I can't right now. I'm in a meeting. And I thought, that can't be real. You can get out of any meeting you want. You're the boss. You can just say, meeting's over and leave. Can you buy me $300 worth of iTunes gift cards? I don't think I can. Well, I can. I will not. And I then we got one from the, that was supposed to be from another one recently that was the dean of the university from Donna Rogers. It's like, uh, no. Are you in your office? It's like, yeah, you're not in your office either. I'm thinking next time I get one, I'm going to do something fun. I'm going to have some fun with it. There was one guy who got hit by this, and he started asking the person academic questions about, you know, what's your favorite paper you've published? Things like that, just to see what happened. And then he posted them all on Twitter. Anyway, when I see a phone number, I say it to myself, right? Out loud, I do that. So they're preventing rehearsal, these guys. Oh, guys were being, being inclusive, including women, because one of the Petersons is a woman. A woman? A woman. is a woman. That's, I, Debbie Peterson identifies as many women. <laughs> I don't even know what that would mean. I'm all kinds of people. Uh, so forgetting in short-term memory is very rapid without any rehearsal. Because after 18 seconds, you're down to 20% recall. That's pretty... It's funny, we always hear short-term, oh, my short-term memory is no good. No, your short-term memory is as good as anybody's. What you call short-term memory is not your short-term memory. Right? The popular parlance version of short-term memory is not short-term memory. So this supports a two-store model. Because you've got stuff in short-term and long-term memory. And I'll show you, this is, this is Peterson and Peterson 59. So if you do it right away, 80% retention. Uh, these are lists of, I believe it was 10 items. Um, but you get down to 18 seconds and it's down to 10%. In other words, it's down to one item. Okay. You stop people from rehearsing. Easy to do. Get them to do some other task. Okay. So short-term memory in the two -store, classic two-store model, the classic Atkinson-Schiffrin model, has a limited capacity, and long-term memory has essentially a limitless capacity. One of the readings that I assigned for this week is Miller's magic number seven, plus or minus two, wherein he says, you can hold seven chunks of information in short-term memory, on average. Some people as low as five, some people as high as nine. Okay. And then later on, Miller went on to say, that's not what I meant. I didn't expect it to catch on. This was like a mnemonic. I feel kind of like ambivalent about that because you wrote it, dude. <laughs> you actually said it. Read the paper. It's sitting right there. And he's like, um, I wrote that. It's not what I actually meant. Sort of an odd thing to do. Um, 
So the idea is that you only have a capacity of seven plus or minus two items or chunks of information in short-term memory. But you have a capacity of essentially limitless capacity in long-term memory. So if we look at free recall, so I give you a list of words. We, we don't use constant, constant trigrams anymore. It's, it doesn't get us anywhere. So if instead I gave you a list of words, and in that list, and then I have you recall them, you recall the first item really well, you recall the last item really well. First couple items pretty well. The first item gets more rehearsal. And the last item is still supposedly, this is the, the notion, is in short-term memory. And the middle, you don't recall well. Okay? The middle items you don't recall well. This is a classic thing that's been demonstrated. Again, this is one of those things that is replicable like crazy. Typically, I do if I, when I've, whenever I've taught intro, which I haven't done in a long time, but when, I taught in, when I've taught intro, I would do this for the class because it's a great demonstration and it just works. I'm not saying nobody remembers middle items or they're impossible to remember. I'm saying that they are not remembered well. If I change the retention interval, if I make it, oh, let's go with 18 seconds. Let's go with, you know, Bram Peterson. Um, Suddenly, the recency effect disappears, and I've only got a primacy effect. So let's take a look at that. Serial position effect, then, looks like this. These are actual made-up data for a list of 20 items. And so the serial position, when they were presented it, here we have the primacy effect, here we have the recency effect. However, if I take away, if I make the retention interval longer, I get rid of the, the primacy effect, and I just have, also the recency effect, and I still have a primacy effect. Okay. This, by the way, is true. Um, this is a, a really, if I give you a list of anything, you're going to remember the first thing's best and the last thing's best. This is why if you were to do a task like this and worry about how memorable some stimuli are, you would, put, you would test different subjects in different orders. Uh, I know that when my wife was in, well, when I was in graduate school, my wife, uh, and then my girlfriend, and then for a while my wife, because I was married part-time at the university. Part of, part of the time, not married part-time, that would be interesting. <laughs> I don't know how that would work. Uh, and she had a proper job. Um, so she worked at a market research kind of slash advertising agency kind of place. So they would test commercials for clients to see if they were memorable commercials, which is a sensible thing. If you can remember the commercial, it should have some effect. So, she would often come home and we'd have the discussions of how was your day, and my, dis my reply was usually the same. I collected data and a bird pooped on me. And hers, she would tell me about the things they were doing, the kind of studies they were doing. She was very good about not telling me who the clients were, but she said our client, I remember one day she said our client was very happy. I said, why? And she said, well, the, our commercial, their commercial was the best remembered commercial. I said, oh, how do you do that? That sounds neat. How do you do, run those studies? She said, well, you show people five commercials, and then you ask them details about each commercial. I said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So the same kind of details? She said, yeah, sure. So like, uh, you know, can you describe some of the people in the commercials? What, what are the slogans, et cetera? Okay, great. I said, so what do you do? Do you show everybody commercials? Everybody gets commercials shown in a different order, of course, right? She said, no, they're all shown in the same order. I said, oh, so your clients was the first one or the last one? She said, what? I said, and the most, the most poorly remembered one, that was the one in the middle, right? She said, how do you know that? I said, I took you through a psych. <laughs> and it's not her fault. She was doing what her boss told her. So then, of course, they had a Christmas party, and they had a lot of free booze. And I went up, and I, you know, when you're a graduate student, you hear free, and you hear booze. You're there. <laughs> and um, I'd had maybe nine drinks, at least nine. And I went up to the guy, and I said, you know what you need is a psychologist working for you or consulting. I will do it for $200 an hour. 
And the guy's looking at me, he goes, you know, I have a master's degree in psychology. So well, if you do, you're not remember any of it. Because the fact that my wife is a nice person and bilingual really helped her that she didn't get fired because her boyfriend was an asshole. Um, but even in that case, that makes complete sense. The recent one and the, uh, the one in the middle, not so much. I still don't know who that client was. And I don't think Isabel remembers who it was anymore because it's a long time ago. I like to think it's Coke or something. No, I like to think it's Burger King because they're kind of the losers out there. Right, they're kind of the Arby's of McDonald's's. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of cool and very understandable, I think. And also, again, it, it, it's nice evidence for a two-store model, right? Long-term memory, short-term memory. Doesn't get in. So items will interfere with each other when you're trying to remember them in short-term memory. So for example, later items become tougher to process because you're already processing earlier items. So you're already rehearsing. So if I give you a list of words, you know, if I give you a list of words, it's like uh, uh, snow, tree, I'm looking outside obviously, snow, tree, sky, desk, light, and you knew you have a memory test coming, you're gonna, what do you need to do? Snow, 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 snow. No, I need to treat it with snow tree, snow tree, snow tree. And I say desk, snow tree, desk, snow tree, desk, snow tree. So at some point, it gets impossible for you to say, to rehearse all those words at once. So the items are interfering, and therefore, they don't get into, they don't get any processing, they don't get put into long, what, what Atkinson Schiffer model says, long term memory. So, if the items are still available in short-term memory, like the recency effect, so the, and the final word is uh, sky, sky. So, and then I end with sky, and I say, okay, what are the words? The first thing you say, sky, because it's still there. And then you give me snow and tree and desk, and then all the ones in the middle, you're like, I, I got nothing. And if in free recall, when you do this with free recall, you actually look, people will, they give you the, the last item first, then the first couple of items, and then they grasp to get some of the middle ones, which they often get wrong, and then they stop. They're like, I, I don't have any more. Now, typically the harder the task here, the more interference there is. So when we say a task is hard, how do we know it's hard? Well, people make more mistakes. And then when you take a look at the kind of errors they make, you can see, oh, it's, it's interference. So if you make them all words that rhyme, it becomes hard. Or, and this depends on the kind of errors, so sometimes or all words that mean the same thing, all synonyms. Now the ones that are, think about this though, where would you expect to find errors what serial position if they were words that sound that were all homonyms? It's not homonyms, but words that sounded the same that rhymed. Where would you expect? Would they be recency of, or primacy? Primacy. Actually, the opposite, because they sound the same. They're going to be just surface level analysis, so they're going to be still screwing up in working memory. If they're similar meaning it's going to be primacy. Because that's where you've actually processed it to the point where it gets into this long-term memory. And that's where storage there tends to be more conceptual. So you have, there's a couple of kinds of interference. There's proactive interference. That's when stuff, previous items interferes with <coughs> present items, with, with retrieving more recent items, rather. So this is like when you're looking for your keys in the morning, and you think, where did I put my keys? And you can't find them, and then you go, oh, I know there. And you go to look, and you're like, right, that was yesterday. That's not just before I left and I had my keys. On the other hand, let's say you're trying to, and this has happened to me, you're trying to find, not your wallet, but you're trying to remember where you put your wallet the other day, because there's a receipt, there was a receipt in your wallet. You know you had it with your wallet, like you took, and you have to return something. And then you put your wallet down, 
and then the, later on you took it and you left the receipt there. You know that happened. That, you're pretty sure about that, but now it's not in your wallet, so it must be where your wallet was. The first thing is, well, I'm gonna find where I put, leave my wallet. Oh, that that was 20 minutes ago. I'm looking for two days ago. That's retroactive interference. I don't have problems with these things anymore, with finding my wallet or not because I have one of these in my wallet and I just, it, it's a little Bluetooth thing and I can just find my wallet. It's great. I have one of my keys, so I don't lose my keys. But it does tell you where your wallet was two days ago, so you can No, it does not. So I would have to put these little tile things on everything I own. <laughs> it gets a little expensive. Technology is making every single example, everyday memory example, be like obsolete. It's like when you can't find your phone. Oh, you mean when you just go online and tell the thing to ring your phone? Oh, yeah, okay. So proactive and retroactive interference. Can you call it proactive interference? Proactive is old stuff interfering with, so old memories interfering with newer memories. So where did I put my keys? Oh, oh, that was two days ago. That wasn't today. That kind of thing. Oh. Right? By the way, the best strategy you can have for things like that is always put your stuff in the same place. <laughs> then, then, then the interference helps you. Yeah. Right? I have a place I put my wallet that only I can reach, first of all. So no one can go through my wallet. Not that anybody's going to do that. But it's, I can reach it and I can see it and a place to put my keys all the time. Because I used to lose my little wallet all the time. Misplacing it, really, I lost it. So the coding we do in short-term memory must be acoustic because we're rehearsing it, right? Like it's gotta be the sound of the word. So what Conrad did is had people remember lists of letters, not <laughs> words, but letters themselves, and wanted to see what kind of words, what kind of, um, I'm sorry, what, 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 how, what kind of confusion people were making. So people confuse V with B, but not F with E. You, F with E, F and E are very similar looking, right? And E is just a, an app with an extra thing on it. And V and B look pretty different, but they sound the same. So it must be the case then that people are, are coding things, encoding things in short-term memory in, with respect to their, 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 their acoustic properties, because it's rehearsal. And in fact, and I talked about this just a second ago, if you use words, confusion is with semantically dissimilar but acoustically similar words. So president and resident are confused, but president and king are not. And in fact, it's the case that even with words with fewer syllables can be are easier to remember even if they are more complex definitionally, so semantically they're more complex. number, when someone gives you their phone number and you go to put it in your phone, you say it out loud until you get all the numbers in. We all do that, right? Unless the person just sends you their contact information. But for regular things, we're trying to remember them. Do we rehearse? We must. We know we do. It's really just silent repetition. The question, I guess, is how the hell are you going to measure silent repetition? 
it's silent. One of the things you can do is say to people, you're going to be given a memory test. Do whatever you want to help yourself remember the word. And this is what Rhonda did in 1971. So she, I think that's a she, I think I remember that's a woman. Um, had subjects say whatever they felt like about the items. And what do people do? They just say the word over and over again. <laughs> so we can then measure actual rehearsal that way. That's the closest we're going to come. Because we can't say, don't think about repeating this word, because you will do that. Like, don't talk to yourself without moving your lips, that kind of thing. Rundus recorded this and found out that the more rehearsal there was, the better the recall was. So people who rehearsed, rather than said, well, uh, maybe I'll draw myself a little picture of a tree, when you said tree, the people that just said, tree, 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 did better than the people who said, a tree is a thing, it's in a forest. Right? And you would think some people are going to do that. Sure. Most people, though, do just go tree, 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 because we know from experience that's how our memories work. This is kind of clever. It's not perfect, but how else are you going to measure rehearsal? Can't. Until we can somehow read thoughts. At that point, we probably already know how memory works. Mm -hmm. I'm just guessing. And of course, the more recent in the rehearsal list the person makes, as you give them the, the items, the, more, the better recalled. So it fits with everything else we know. So this is kind of a cool result. However, there's a lot of there's courses like that, eh? No. Um, it may not be recency and short-term memory, it may just be that some items are more discriminable from other items. So it might be that the most recent item is more easy to discriminate from other items. Okay? Because what you're doing is, when you re re reply, when you, when you give your free recall, it's a discrimination task when you think about it, because you have to say, was the thing I'm about to say, was that on the list? Then I'll say it out loud. So maybe it's, it's just easier to discriminate from all the other items you have in short-term memory. So the idea here is you might have a lab, what's called elaborative processing, actually thinking about a tree being in the forest or something, for early items. So really, instead, this is what's called a levels of processing argument, that some things are processed more deeply than others. It's not that they are go to a different kind of memory system. They're just processed both semantically, a tree is in a forest, and at a surface level, tree, what it sounds like. Okay? So it's not a systems then thing. It's just saying, it's not systems, it's uh, one's just more deep than another. It's, had, it's been processed more. So we stopped saying short-term memory about 25 years ago, maybe more than that, maybe about 35 years ago. And we started saying working memory. Because we started thinking even like, look, short-term store, short-term memory has a, an interactive component to it, doesn't it? Because you work on the items. You rehearse the items. Yeah. But generally, it's kind of passive, right? Stuff goes in, stuff might get chunked, right? So the notion then is that information gets stored, and we've talked about chunking before with, with the chess masters the other day. We chunk with phone numbers, right? Because we're phone number experts, all of us, right? So we, we, the phone number for the university, for example, is 705-949-2301. You can even hear in the way I say that, that I'm, that's three items, not 10. 
because I say 705-949-2301. When you move to a new city, the area code's easy because there's usually one or two area codes in the city. It's the one in the middle that's hard to, to, to learn that that's, if you've lived in Sioux St. Marie for any amount of time, you know that 949 is one of the, what they call, used to call exchanges. Right? So we chunk things like that. Move to a new city, it becomes hard to remember phone numbers. If you move to a new country, it doesn't use seven digit numbering. It's weird. I remember when I was in Oxford and someone said, just ring me up, which already sounds weird. So no, what's your phone number? 01655, and went, excuse, no, that can't be the start of a phone number. And then she gave me like eight more digits, and I said, how do you people even survive over here? <laughs> it's hard, right? But it, we've, and remember when you were a kid, you first learned phone numbers, and you learned, you would learn your phone number, and you learned it like, I remember my, my phone number from when I lived in Toronto. It was 223-5260. See, again, I'm still doing it, da 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 but when I remember learning, going two, two, three, five, like I remember it in seven items, and then we don't. So that's happening. We are chunking things. So some sort of active part of it. So it's not really passive. We know that the ex external events can affect how we process stuff. We can get that interference, right? So if you're trying to remember a phone number when you're repeating it to yourself before you put it into your phone, one of the fun things you can do with your friends if you're mean is you can just start yelling random digits at them, right? So you see somebody's giving someone else their phone number, you just go seven, four, one, nine, and they stop it. Can you tell me it again? Now do it even without numbers, doesn't matter, it could be anything. Orange, apple, football, chairs. Stop it! Then don't do it again because you get hit in the face. Like twice is okay, it's kind of funny. Third time, any friend at all will probably punch you. But, again, external's coming in, we're trying to process. So we're kind of active. So the idea of calling it short-term store, short-term memory, seemed like it was passive, so the idea became, well, we work on stuff, it's working memory, it's almost like a workbench, okay? So working memory, because it's not just this thing that has slots, seven plus or minus two slots, that it's something else is going on, that we're actively working on stuff, they say, we have to start thinking with this. This thing has subsystems of its own. A lot of this work is Badley's work early on. Um, and talking about working memory being made up of what's called a central executive, a phonological loop, and a visuospatial sketch pad. The central executive sounds weird. And that's partially because it's kind of a weird idea. What the central executive does is it decides, it decides what to process and how to process. The phonological loop is kind of like the, the classic short-term memory in that it's the memory you need to be talking, to be reading. It's, 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 it's phonological, it's about words. And the visual spatial sketch pad is, well, it's kind of like what it sounds like. It's telling, it's constantly updating where stuff is, where you are, where you're going, where you've been. But it's always getting updated and erased. It's kind of like an etch a sketch in a way. If you ever play with an etch a sketch. One of the things that got people thinking about this, and people said, okay, what are the characteristics of working memory? Well, Sternberg, again, this is very cool work and it's completely counterintuitive, but Sternberg would present people with lists of uh, letters. Are they letters? Yeah, typically it's letters with Sternberg stuff. And say, and then they'd say, okay, what, like, so it's, it's you know, J L R M P Q S. Was X on the list? 
So you'd go through and you'd find out if X was on the list or not. The notion is, the question is, when you do this, do you actually search every possible item in order? Or do you search them all at once in parallel? You search them in order, serial. And once you get to the, the fact that it matches or not, do you stop? Okay. And what Sternberg found with yes, no responses on things like this, was this on the list of things I gave you or not, is he found that people do serial search, which is interesting because you think it, it's certainly more, more uh, what's what I'm looking for, efficient to do parallel processing. Do it all at once. We do it in serial. We look at one item after the other. And we do it exhaustively, which is counterintuitive. So even when we've got to, one of the items was P, and I think it was early on in my list. We keep going through all the rest of them. We don't just stop. And how do we know that? You look at reaction times. How long does it take for people to say yes or no something was on a list? So I'll show you these are what the results kind of look like. Okay, if it was in parallel, the results would look like this. <clears throat> Doesn't matter if it's yes or no, it takes you the same amount of time if it's an early item or a late item. Does that make sense? So along the bottom here, so this is time, and this elapsed time, uh, sorry, this is position, and this is elapsed time. If it's serial and exhaustive, should look like that. And if it's serial and self-terminating, you should stop when you get to the, the right item. But you don't. This is what we do. Excuse me? We actually go through the whole damned list. Always. Yes or no? So even if the answer is yes, yeah. the third letter on the list, you're still going You go all the way through, which is really bizarre and counterintuitive, but it's replicable like crazy. Huh. This, is measured in, in, this is measured in tenths of a second. Like, yeah. we, and we don't get these wrong either. No one says, and when they do, it's very rare. Like It yeah. does happen. It's just it's a typical false alarm kind of thing. So it's really kind of neat that we do this. So that we don't do that. We do that. <laughs> That's what we do. We go all the way through the damn list. Pretty nifty. I don't know why I have to move around like that. I mostly do that because it's fun, but I can't. So, that's the first indication that we are actively doing something. We are acting on the representation. So, it becomes this, like I said, multiple component model working memory. So it's got abstract semantic knowledge, and people figured badly, other people said, well, it's not just lists of words. There's gotta be other stuff we have in there too. Oh, by the way, just to make that perfectly clear, I should go back to this, because it's not, I don't think I made that completely clear. So I'm gonna go back to, where is it? No. Oh, for hell, Okay, blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, yes. Now look, this is the number of items on a list. So if it's eight items, it's gonna take longer. I don't know if I made that clear, that's, that's the thing. So that's why, in, in essence, the middle one becomes the correct one. So if I have a two item list, it only takes me this long to get through it, or a one item list. If I have a five item list, it takes me longer. That's why the thing has a, is a slope, okay? And if it was parallel, it all happened at the same time. Wouldn't matter if it was one item or 10 items. So this is how long it takes you to say yes or no, and this is how many items there are on the list. I realized after I went through that that I wasn't entirely clear about that. Okay? So if it's two items, it takes you less time than it does if it's five items or eight or whatever. And yet you typically don't do a pass about seven because of magic number seven plus or minus two. Okay, the questions about that? Because I want to make that clear. And I realized oh, that wasn't clear. Because I remember learning this and thinking, I don't get it. 
And I just had a flashback to being 20. Okay, good. Right, so as I was saying, so eventually abstract semantic knowledge and procedural knowledge were added to working memory. So this, the notion here is that we've got, but I, I must bring things into working memory. Like abstract semantic knowledge is things like, what's the capital of Vietnam? Hanoi. I must have brought that into working memory. Because I said it. And it's not taking up a slot, data shows this, in the phonological loop, but I'm bringing in this abstract semantic knowledge. Things come into procedural memory. I'm reading. So the read words program is loaded, sort of. That's the best analogy I can figure, figure out. So it's like that happens. Or the how do I do calculus? You know, how do I do a, do a, do a derivative? program is loaded into uh, abstract, into procedural knowledge. Or you can think about something like, for example, playing a video game, driving a car. Or for me, mixing a podcast of a lecture, because I can, I can literally do it and not pay attention to what I'm doing. It's become just procedural memory for me. Many of you have talked to in my office, and I think at the same time I'm mixing audio. And once I tell you, you probably aren't aware that's what I'm doing. You just see me fiddling with things and clicking and pointing. Yeah, you might think, wait a sec, so we just keep throwing things at working memory. Oh, no subsystems. One of the criticisms of systems approaches to memory is, oh, whenever you get a new result, uh, you just say there's another system. Tolving always used that example for episodic versus semantic, knowing what breakfast is versus knowing what you had for breakfast. And I remember Norm Slameka one day saying, oh yes, of course, the breakfast memory system because he didn't think systems made any sense, because he was a behaviorist, hardcore. But if we can dissociate these things, if we can do different procedural things, and it doesn't affect the number seven plus or minus two items, for example, in phonological loop, they're dissociable, we're probably okay. They can be associated from each other. The central executive tells these different <coughs> subsystems what to do and when. So can you back up just a second? Yes, please. So you're saying these things can be dissociated. Yes. So does that mean that they're there's different parts of the working memory? Yeah, there are different parts of still working memory because you can still have problems with central executive and you can't, it, it screws up all of these subsystems. So like the, like you have like the phonological loop yes. and the video-spatial sketchpad, but yes. there's other things? Procedural like, knowledge procedural and knowledge semantic, uh, sort of semantic buffer, it's sometimes called the semantic uh, knowledge. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. One of the issues with, I mean a lot of people have thought about uh, autism being a, a central executive problem, mm -hmm. right? The idea is that knowing what to pay attention to is a, is a, it can be a real problem with people with autism. And it turns out that if you think of that as being a central executive problem, an executive functioning problem, it makes some sense. It's easy to have to interfere with their central executive, which screws up all those subsystems, right? So with you or I, for example, procedural knowledge, driving, knowing how to drive a car. You guys, because you guys all know how to drive, I don't, but you know, but I can do this on a bicycle. I can ride my bike and have a conversation with somebody. It's not a problem. It's trivially easy. I, you can do that when you're driving, unless you have to really pay attention. So not on a day like this where it's horrible at minus 1,000, right? But on a regular day, you can drive a car and have a discussion with somebody, right? Or you can listen to the radio and hear a song and think to yourself, oh, what is that? Oh, who did that again? Oh, that's those guys. But the greatest one is you can actually have a discussion with someone in your car and you don't, and it doesn't distract you. The phone's different. 
and there's a reason the phone is different. It's mostly because you don't get the feedback from people right away, so you're trying to guess how they're thinking. You don't actually see their face or hear their voice or hear them go, are you talking to them? Because you're talking too much? So we know that that procedural knowledge driving a car and the phonological loop, it doesn't distract from your conversation ability, typically, or your ability to drive a car, unless one of them demands extra attention. Right? Okay, so that's just an example of how we can sort of dissociate these things. And you can do that in the lab, too. It's interesting that temporal lobe damage can mess up central executive function. So it messes up the notion that you, have, you can do, that you can assign things to different subsystems. So there seems to be something to it. As much as it, to me, intuitively it makes, I guess it's because of the name. Frankly, maybe that's why I have a bias against it. Like, I don't like the idea that there's something inside of me. It's not, like, not the idea. I think it's a weird notion that there's another mind in my mind making decisions about how my mind works. It seems kind of, just doesn't seem right, doesn't sit right somehow. The data show it seems to be there, so I'm not gonna argue with it that way. It just strikes me odd. Does anybody else feel that way or is that just me? Right? It seems like a ghost in the machine, right? It seems like inside you there's somebody pulling levers. It seems like when you have Arnold Schwarzenegger looking through and he's the Terminator, and why does he have to read an output on his eye? I feel like it makes sense that there needs to be a starting point, like a yeah. command center. Yeah. But who watches the watcher? I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's sort of weird somehow to me. But the data show it works, so I, I don't argue with that. I mean, I, I'm not gonna, it just always has struck me as sort of an odd notion, and I think it's because of what it supposedly does. It, it's a task switching thing. But it's kind of like, I don't think the idea that there's a CPU in my, you know, in my computer as being odd, and it makes those decisions. Yeah. So it's probably fine. Here's what working memory looks like. Well, uh, this is the most common sort of schematic of it. So you've got the central executive, you've got procedural knowledge, abstract semantic knowledge, the phonological loop, and the visual spatial sketch pattern. And what central executive is doing is it's saying, you, you, you information go there, this information go here, this information goes here. That's what it's doing. So it's kind of making decisions about what gets processed and when. And these things are sort of parallel processing because they're dealing with different kinds of information. Okay? All right, now, some people talk about there being below this, this is where it gets kind of bizarre. Not bizarre, I mean, it, again, the system works and the data show it works like this. But this, the notion gets, is getting a little more complicated now that we have this episodic buffer, right? And so now we've got kind of five subsystems, but no, this doesn't show five, this shows a central executive, episodic bu buffer, phonological loop, visual spatial sketch pad, and then we've got episodic long-term memory and language and what are called visual semantics. So that's when you look at a word, what's it mean? And they're all separate parts. And this is, as it says here, this is crystallized, this is fluid. This is stuff that you know. This is knowledge you have. That's why it's crystallized. This is fluid, in other words, it's constantly changing. The episodic buffer, eh, let's think of that as, well, when I remember what I, my, my, I don't know. Let's think of one. When I remember my brother's 10th birthday party, because I actually can remember that. Um, 
This is now obviously in working memory, in quote, consciousness. I can think about it. Sure. That's the notion of episodic buffer. We can get even more complicated. Whoops. Yay. So it's more like, put it this way, episodic buffer is above visual spatial sketch pad and phonological loop. This is the flow of information. You know, I like the I like the one with the central executive, the phonological loop, visual spatial sketch pad, procedural semantic. That's great for me. <laughs> this starts to get, as you can see here, this is this is sort of theoretic. This is a guess. These are all I guess guesses. The idea here is looking at what different kinds of memory, where do they go? Does smell and taste go right to the episodic buffer? I don't know. This is beyond our concern. I'm saying that you're going to run into different kinds of models here. For me, the easiest model to understand, and the one that explains a lot of data, and for our purposes is reasonable, is the idea of the four boxes. Central executive, phonological loop, visual spatial sketchpad, procedural knowledge, semantic knowledge, or, or semantic buffer, whatever it's called. So, you're going to guess there's going to be problems with this approach. Okay, so there's a central executive, and I've been touching on this already. Okay. So, who controls the central executive? If the central executive is making decisions, and I have no problem with there being subsystems make decisions, that happens all the time. Right? There's a, decisions are made by your nervous system constantly. Right? So if I decide to do that, I don't know what that's for, but if I decide to do that, something made that decision. So I have no problem with that, but the idea that, and again, with me flailing my arms, something has decided to do that. But it seems to me somehow that something should control the central executive. I don't know why I bump on this all the time, and I have ever since I learned about it. Um, Badly was at U of T when I was a grad student. I remember asking him this. And his response was the very logical one. Like I just said, decisions are made by your nervous system all the time. He was there on a, like a sabbatical. That was one of the neat things about being at Toronto was that also people would visit from other places and they'd also be famous. It's pretty cool. And you'd, you know, you'd be out for a beer with somebody and you'd just say, so, I don't understand. And they'd explain it to you. It's pretty great. Grad school's good that way. To me, it's a ghost in the machine. Like it's 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 sort of Deus ex machina. Yet, frankly, it explains data. I shouldn't have a problem with this. I think this is some weird philosophical problem that I have, which I shouldn't have because it explained the data explained it. And I'm an empiricist and a materialist and all those things and all those things don't bother me. Yet somehow this does, and it shouldn't. So I know it's stupid that it bothers me. So it's probably not a problem. I've heard other people say this though. So this isn't just me going, this is weird. I think it's human that it bothers you. I think so too, but I'm not, see, <laughs> but I know we have no free will and that doesn't bother me in the least. Like, <laughs> no, you're right, I think you're right. It probably is just my, my humanity going, it can't, that can't be true, I'm a free man. Except I know I have no free will. Yeah. It doesn't bother me in the least. I don't give a shit. Bunnies don't care. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So I guess it's probably not a problem, it's just me being an idiot. Which is, you know, the story really of my life. <laughs> this is not that big a deal, you're just an idiot, Dave. I guess how does it know what to do, what? well, frankly, that's the programming. The same thing with my CPU, my computer. Like, how does it know what core should work on a, on a process? It's been programmed to do that. And you say, who does the programming? Evolution. Oh, okay. I guess that's okay. I shouldn't have a problem with this. <laughs> but I do, and it, it's always bothered me. All right. We can draw, I think, some conclusions generally about short-term or working memory. First of all, short-term memory or short-term store or working memory, I don't care what you want to call it, is an active process. 
It's not passive like it was originally thought back in the 50s. We are processing information actively. We are doing things with information. And it seems to have different faculties. What I mean by that is those sort of subsystems. And that again makes some sense. Right? When they were talking early on about the 7 plus or minus 2, they were really talking about a phonological loop. They weren't talking about knowing where you've been and where you're going. That's not was not the thing they were concerned about. So it's pretty clear it has different kind of faculties. What those faculties are, I like the four. The idea of an episodic buffer makes sense to me, but it's not the one, that, the generally accepted thing you're going to see is phonological loop, visuospatial sketch pad, semantic knowledge, and um, procedural uh, knowledge being in there. I still bump on central executive. I'm going to stop worrying about it. The next time I teach this course, those last couple of slides aren't going to be there. Because it shouldn't bother me. Because other things don't bother me. And they're just as weird. The idea that we have no free will is just as weird as this. In fact, it may even be weirder to some people. The idea that there's a lot of things like that that just don't bug me. That we're all just bags of chemicals doesn't bother me the least, but for some reason, something about my working memory bothers me? Why is that a thing? It should. Questions? Please don't ask a lot of questions. You know what it is? This class is smaller than it usually is. There's not that many questions. That's worth it. All right, we're done. Uh, remember, test on Wednesday. Be there. Okay, so I didn't need to have the backup record. available, of course, on iTunes or whatever podcatcher you're using. Just search for Dave, uh, Dr. Dave Broadbeck's uh, Psychology Lectures from Algoma University, which is the most ungainly title ever. Uh, these are released under a sh uh, 
um, Creative Commons copyright share like 3.0 Canada, uh, you can't use these for commercial purposes. Um, you feel free to share them uh, and feel free to mash them up any way you want. But if you do that, that means I get to do the same thing with your stuff. Sort of like the GAU license. Um, I hope you learned something. But if you didn't, I, unless you're one of my students, I really don't care. Um, the music, by the way, for each uh, song, for each uh, uh, episode, <laughs> lecture, uh, is uh, available. They're all podcast, uh, like Podsafe music. So if you want to uh, find out about the bands, there's links on my website at people.aoc.ca slash broadback. Uh, if those links don't work, just contact me and I'll find, uh, I'll find out. Um, often I put links uh, actually in the... Uh, if you want to call them show notes or blog posts. So, uh, you know, buy these people's music. They're, they're making the stuff available out there. Uh, thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.